When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dr. Dale Graff, who worked in Stargate Project, and I always get it messed up. I always call it Project Stargate, and it's not. It's Stargate Project. But before we go in any further, for all the listeners who don't know anything about Stargate Project or yourself, please introduce yourself, Dr. Graff. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for having me on your podcast. Of course. And um, I just want to clarify, Stargate was a long-running project, running about 18 to 20 years. And I was involved in an activity related to Stargate for, for most of that time and a director towards the, the final uh, part of, of the program. And Stargate actually uh, is an umbrella term for a phenomenon that began investigation at, a, at the Stanford Research Institute in the early 1970s. And they were looking at a phenomenon um, of, of mental cognition um, that they called remote viewing, where people could uh, define and identify scenes that were concealed from them, or distant locations or pictures in an envelope. They called that remote viewing. Uh, earlier times, at earlier times, were other other ways of defining the phenomenon. You know, and they go back decades and centuries, and you have terms like clairvoyance and all that. But it's basically the, the innate human ability to describe and access distant scenes and places or information unknown to them. So that eventually um, led to the research program to try to understand the phenomenon better. Uh, under what conditions can it be, a, can be, um, can people realize it and experience it in the laboratory as well as in their personal lives. And uh, eventually it generated enough interest in the government where an official in-house program began in the late 1979, 1980, which is really the beginning of the term Stargate um, around that time frame. There were other code words attributed to the phenomenon when we were trying to apply remote viewing on operational projects uh, for intelligence or for locating airplanes, for example, when it became an in-house activity within the government. And later on, uh, as the program grew, uh, there were really two, two aspects to it. The external research that continued on at the Stanford Research Institute, and also the in-house government program, which was located at Fort Meade, Maryland. And at some point during this process, I actually became the director of that activity. And uh, I, I'm the one that coined the name Stargate as the umbrella term to encompass both the, the research part that continued on uh, at Stanford Research Institute and also the operational projects that we were doing um, at Fort Meade for various customers in the intelligence community and the operational community. And that aspect, that operational aspect, continued on until about 1995 when the program was closed. So the, the program has a long history and it has varying, varying degrees of involvement and, and, um, and commitment, um, both financially and uh, resource-wise. But it, it continued more or less as it continues 
as a, um, a bona fide program um, or project. Um, I, th I think we could probably better call it a project, although I think the idea of a program uh, makes more sense now. Looking looking back over time, it really, it really evolved into a, a long-running program. And so with the military, you know, it they sure you could say maybe during the cold war just like right after 9-11 it it kind of seems like um it kind of every contract is granted almost it, and i say that loosely it's but everything that has some like right after 9-11 that uh that boeing with the uh that chemical laser on it to shoot down icbms like kind of everything with any sort of application gets granted but eventually there's a culling and you you know you find the ones that work and quadruple down and you push forward on them and you know you always hear about things like like the F35 and it's they're spending you know it's a money sinkhole but then we have things like the B52 which is still flying and they're still flying miraculously but there is a just despite the kind of the stereotype of defense contractors being able to spend everything eventually you do have to find the product that works and deliver it to me it's astonishing not so much that that this project ever got off the ground, because like I just said, you know, anything, you know, we're fighting a Soviet threat right after World War II, 85 million dead, thermonuclear war are the stakes. Sure, you, you, you try everything. What's fascinating to me is that it stayed funded for so long, meaning, and I, and I know from reading, that it had some genuine successes. I mean... Like you said, the NSA at Fort Meade used it, I believe, in a special access program. They they had some success, or I guess tangible success, in the in the uh, 1979 Iran hostage situation, where they they saw, you know, the woman saw the the helicopter crashing, and she wasn't even read in on that, or to find planes, or um, you know, uh, uh, viewing nuclear missile silos, or very large successes with remote viewing. Because it went on for so long, I can only assume that it had some wild successes. In 95, I mean, that's, you know, depending on your, your timetable, that's six or four years after the fall of the Soviet Union. So kind of wrapping it up towards the end of the Cold War. Is there anything that you can go into or would like to go into about some of the more concrete successes or at least or at least um maybe threads that were discovered that said, hey, there are some phenomena beyond current human comprehension? Oh, certainly. Uh, first of all, on the research side, there are uh, any number of, of experiments that were uh, totally under, under total scientific control that were validated. So, and this has been on for, for um, almost two decades or more. And, and the accumulation of the research itself stands out as, as being a, a, a real uh, tall pole in the tent, so to speak. But from the operational point of view, which is really where the attention is in the applied world, um, yeah, there were there's several very outstanding projects that, that were successful. And um, I'll just briefly describe one of them that I was directly involved in, and that was a search for um, an, an abducted uh, general, uh, army general. Uh-huh. 1969, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I got the, year, the, the wrong year, 1979. And um, um, it, it, it was a, a, a very difficult project because the, the, the general was hidden somewhere in Italy and by a red terrorist group. 
And uh, we were called in to, uh, to work on the project. And um, I was the one sent into the field to help coordinate all the activity. So for the, the month long frame of time that he was held captive, we were doing sessions and recording our impressions. And the, the total accumulated results of all that really had pinpointed his location fairly accurately. And had, had he not been located by an informer, I, I'm positive we could have almost gone right up to the exact location. Um, one of the problems with remote viewing and related phenomena is it's very difficult uh, to get names and, and actual numbers, um, particularly if they're in a, in a long sequence, like a license plate number or sure. a difficult uh, address. So those are difficult things that we had to work around. And uh, we were able to do, to do that from the point of view of describing a general location and narrowing that down to a very specific uh, area of a city uh, and even the name of the city. So yeah, yes, that was a very insightful and um, successful project, even though he was rescued by a SWAT team based on an informer. It, it showed it showed the potential of the phenomenon. Now that was that was one. Another one that was really um, really spectacular was locating the missing airplane mm -hmm. in um, in Africa, and that was a, actually a Soviet built airplane. Um, that the pilot had defected and flown south from a base in Libya. Until he ran out of fuel, he bailed out, and um, the plane crashed somewhere in southern Africa. And, of course, the intelligence community wanted to get access to all the equipment and all and to analyze <clears throat> the full capability of the airplane from the electronics point of view as well as performance and all the things that make up a modern um, bomber. But they quickly sent a team in, but they couldn't find the airplane, uh, even though they were convinced it was within a very tight radius of where the uh, pilot bailed out and where people had sighted the airplane uh, flying at low altitude. They couldn't find it. So I was called into it. Uh, it was one of the early projects. And people in my organization had just learned of, of my interest and the fact that I had someone that could do what we called remote viewing and uh, brought her into the, the task. This is this a highly um, secure project, by the way. Um, so we were brought into it not knowing what it really was we were looking for other than something's missing, an airplane is missing. And we came up with sketches and uh, diagrams or a path, a flight path, and that looked like it matched some kind of geometry of a map, possibly. We gave that to the search team, and they were able to um, locate an equivalent uh, marking or an equivalent topography on a, on a large-scale map that they had on, on the search wall. And um, they sent information to the search team in, that was not in place clandestinely in Africa. And uh, it got to just about a day before they were they had to get out of country. They couldn't find the airplane in, in the area they were originally looking. But the data we sent in had the airplane like 90 miles further to the west. So they saw there was really nothing to lose. So they sent a helicopter over in that direction. It came down into a clearing and landed. And lo and behold, there was a native down there holding a piece of the metal from the airplane. So had, had we not sent that, had the, the CIA, whoever was doing the operation, not sent the helicopter, the helicopter over there, we would not have known uh, where the plane was. It would have been buried in the jungle for decades. So we were able to get the crew in 
gadget electronics that we needed, analyzed it, and out of there, almost in the nick of time before um, um, the government find out we were in there. (laughs) That's so, to me, those are two such concrete examples. I mean, the latter, right, because the foreign technology division, that's always a huge coup, is to get, uh, I had on two weeks ago David Hoffman, author of Billion Dollar Spy, all about getting all the intel about the development of the MiG-29, and that's from having an inside man in the Soviet Union. But the actual technology, right? I mean, there are so many times where, you know, we would get our hands on a Soviet radar dish or something and we'd bring it out to, you know, Nevada and so we could test everything on it. Or uh, was the hind, the hind, the helicopter? I mean, there's like a daring expedition of uh, when we got our hands on one of those. Getting your hands on the actual technology, that would be like if... Uh, that would be like if Android got their hands on a on a prototype iPhone, right? Schematics are great, but if you can get the actual thing, break it apart, look, it's that is such a coup, especially during the Cold War. So there's one example, and then the Italian general, or the general in Italy, I believe he was a NATO general. I mean, and I'm not sure if it was you or if it was someone else from the program, but I mean, they went and met with the Delta Force commander. Like, these are... These are no yeah. nonsense guys. Yeah, I was, I was the one sent in. That was um, you? It was the Delta team, yeah. That's so cool. Uh, that, I, I listened to that story so many times. Yeah, and that was, that was just, <laughs> there's another aspect to this phenomenon called synchronicity. Uh-huh. And I think the reason I, I ended up involved in, with that Delta Force activity was through synchronicity. Because he, he was familiar with it, right? Our organization would not have been involved in it. So, because we did not have the charter to actually go in the field as an operational um, intelligence analyst. Uh, I, but we, we did have the, um, the, uh, the charter to analyze data from afar. So this was a case where at that time I was employed by the Defense Intelligence Agency in Washington, D.C. after I translate, uh, transferred down there from the Foreign Technology Division in Dayton, Ohio. So uh, I was only been there a couple of months. When um, I went in, when the general was abducted, that was an army general who was a NATO a NATO commander uh, in Verona, Italy, and uh, he was abducted on, on December 17. And um, and within a day, the um, all the intelligence activities were directed to to trying to find the general, and the team was sent in to do that. I was not part of that original team. But then later, uh, I went about a week or two later, actually a week later, there was a snowstorm in Washington, D.C., and uh, all the offices were closed. You know, we were the radio and TV said, don't come in, government workers. Uh, We have 22 inches of snow here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The city is paralyzed. But at that time, I I had an apartment within walking distance of, of the DIA building in Roslyn. And I thought it's a great day to go out and photograph black and white because I was taking a photography course at the time. Okay. And uh, so I, I walked around a little bit. There was a 7-Eleven open. I had a cup of coffee. And about 9 o'clock, I just, there was an urge. There was an impulse to go to the office. Yes. And this doesn't make a lot of sense. Because why should I go there? Nobody else is there except the, uh, the guard. And so I, I worked my eight or nine minutes. It took longer with the snow. And got there with my heavy boots on and coat and whatever. And the um, the guard was really suspicious. I said, "Look, I'm 
fairly new here. I need to get in to get caught up in work. Yeah. yeah. Try to make up some kind of excuse. Yeah. So I get in there and I'm sitting around at the desk and why am I here? And uh, the phone rings in the, in the director's office and kept ringing. And I just, on impulse, answered it. And uh, there was somebody looking for remote viewing help to locate the general from the Pentagon. And I didn't know at the time that that was uh, the Delta Force commander office. Uh, so the first opportunity when the Metro started running, <clears throat> I went over there and, and explained things and what we might do and what we may not be able to do, you know, qualify it properly. This is not, you know, the, the answer for everything, but we might help out. And within about a day and a half, I'm on my way to Italy as part of the team. So it, it was a synchronistic thing. It really was. I should not have been in that office at that time when nobody else was there. So it worked out really well because I was able to um, actually work with the team and, and uh, saw how um, an intense activity like that can be performed under adverse conditions using all kinds of intelligence tools and services that we could have uh, in that country working with the, the, Intel the, the Italian intelligence activities and, and local law enforcement trying to to locate the general based on um, ordinary means, <laughs> but we, we 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 supplied some extraordinary means. And, yeah, uh, and actually, the locational data that was uh, really quite good. So it was um, the combination of things, and um, it's one of those one of those days, the times when I'm glad I acted on impulse because it it, it really brought me into a, a really tremendous project in a really serious uh, situation trying to save somebody's life who could very well have been murdered at any any time during that month-long ca captivity. In fact, I think we, we, it was found in a nick of time. Oh, yeah. So it was a close call. And um, when the, um, the SWAT team or the, the Italian team, that the special operations team charged into the apartment, they, they only had a few seconds to... Uh, to disarm or to, to immobilize the, the five terrorists that were in there holding those your um your captive in a in the middle room uh in a tent of all things in a tent um so that you couldn't hear or see, not you couldn't see much what was going on around him so uh, you can find <laughs> yeah it's that was one of the things that kind of threw us off we were getting tents uh, and then a city oh i didn't know that part yeah, so how how could this be? Yeah, words, the symbolisms. If if it's a symbol, if it's accurate, it's really ancient words. So that um, that solved the problem. He was actually in tent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, I didn't know that part. I, I I'd known they went in and yeah, they, they they had a gun to his head. But the yeah. synchronicity. It's it's man. It's one thing that you go into the office because you're just feeling it, but. Is, there's like another level of synchronicity because wasn't the Delta Force commander, this wasn't just a normal kind of, you know, and I have on a Delta Force guy a lot named Dale Comstock. He was in Delta Force in the 80s and 90s. And so not only these no-nonsense guys, though, but like they they don't get to that position by being kind of grunts. Like these are very intelligent individuals. And so the commander, if I recall correctly, actually said to you like, hey, I know all about this stuff. And he he... He talked about how there had been some other studies, you know, back in the day that kind of discredited it. And you began talking to him. But what were the chances that like the Delta Force commander just happened to like know a little bit about remote viewing? And you talked to him and he looked at it and was like, you know what? All right. Maybe there's something here. 
That's yeah, no, that was another stroke of synchronicity. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, but a lot of it, some of it was misinformation. And uh, the challenge I had was to show and to explain as best as I could what, what was wrong about the original story that you had. Mm-hmm. So I was able to turn turn that around. But it um, it was it was a case where, like like in any controversial area, you can't come on too strong. You have to kind of be really placid about it. You, you, you let them know that you're you really you're not an evangelist trying to sell something. Sure. So and the other synchronicity involved with that there were several. This is another one of them. I had made a trip to the Ryan Research Center. Uh, just a couple of weeks earlier, uh, just to get some background on the early days of the Rhine work at, at, at uh, the Duke University Parapsychology Laboratory in the 30s and 40s. I was just curious about that. And while I was there, I met uh, Louisa Rhine, and uh, she was in um, the library just reading, and I came in. And so we, we were just the two of us, and I had a, a chance to talk with her at great length. And she gave me some details which I never heard of before, and you know some of the some of the fraud charges and the problems they had, and names involved. Now I had all this in my mind when I was talking to this commander, and the, this is exactly what I needed to combat his disbelief. Yeah. <laughs> so I had I had the right names. I, yeah. I knew that he was talking about. Yeah. So it's it, another one of those pieces that fit together. Yeah. It's yeah. You're right. You can't come on. You can't come on as an evangelist about it and you can't come on. It's more so you have to come about it like, hey, I know this sounds weird, but like we do have some promise in this. And if this is a dire situation and because he he named, you know, X, Y, Z study or case and was like that kind of disproved it. It was very beneficial that you were able to say like, hey, yeah, no, I know about that case. And that guy doesn't represent everyone. That was a kind of a thing. But it's I was only supposed to be there for three or four minutes before being kicked out of out of the, out of the area. Yeah, <laughs> but twenty five minutes later, we we're still talking. Yeah, the staff couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the other thing about this story for everyone listening is, yeah, no, they they decided that they they didn't want you guys, and you were like, let me just go have a word with them, and what should have been like a you know a two minute in and out, and you know get out of my yeah. office. It's a Delta Force guy. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. Staff was- so instead of getting a ticket home, I ran on down to to, um, to, to Vicenza and joined, connected up as the final leg of the search team. It's quite a, quite an amazing synchronistic series there. It absolutely. I mean, the synchronicity is almost more amazing than the actual remote viewing and finding the guy. It's the lead up is almost more insane than the actual story. Yeah, there were so many things. You know, that was, I mentioned two or three of them. The other one involved in that search. A trip on the on the airplane in Washington D.C. National, waiting to get to leave. Um, at that point, there was a change in plans, and I and the um, the army captain was accompanying me. He was the Italian translator. That was to be sent along for the tour. Was to read to join up with the team later um, in Vicenza, and while we were waiting in the airport, it was like. Ten, ten minutes to go, we, we learned that um, there's no more seating available. We were five in the five in line, and we may, we may as well come back come back the next day, which would have been way too late. So right before we were ready to give up, five people in front of us changed their plans, 
and we were able to get seated on that plane. So it's just incredible timing. So yeah. with those with those two stories, the, the finding the airplane and the importance of foreign technology and the foreign technology division, as well as being involved with Delta Force in recovering uh, a general who had been kidnapped, and that same group that kidnapped him had done a kidnapping, I think, a couple months or a couple years prior and ended up killing the guy. So this wasn't – this was for keeps – Oh yeah, right. That was that was their modus operandi. Oh yeah, one or two weeks, you find the body in the river. Oh yeah, no, these guys weren't. They weren't. They didn't bluff. Yeah, no, they would. They would. Yeah. So, so with those two cases of such definitive value and everything, and then it's all just dialed up because it's during the Cold War. Why, why would this have? Why would the program have ever stopped or? Did the program perhaps go somewhere else? Did it go into some other agency or, or go to a different name? Or it, it just seems like the value is so concrete that you would have to keep pursuing it. Well, the the real reason the effort was canceled was because of the uh, the certain people at the at the, um, the the top of the line in the intelligence community just didn't believe in it, regardless of what we accomplished. Uh, and they just wanted nothing to do with it and um, made sure that it, it got canceled. There was a review group set up, but that was that was um, stuff, you might say, with uh, people that really didn't didn't want to see it anyway. You know, they, they were the, some of the major critics of the field. And you're not going to make any progress logically with, um, with what, I, what we call the dedicated critic. So I, everything came together, to just a few people at the top that said, uh, that's it, we don't want to do it, cancel it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I guess that does that does sway. I mean, Curtis LeMay, you know, uh, <coughs> chief of the, or secretary of the Air Force, chief of the Air Force, head of strategic air command, he, he kind of pushed back on the missile program for so long because, you know, he, he, well, he would lead bomber squadrons in World War II. There was a lot of, there was a lot of love for the, you know, we go in with fleets of bombers. Then eventually he was convinced that, hey, you know, missiles are, they're on standby all around the clock. They're, they go faster, hit anywhere in the world in an hour. And eventually he kind of became a convert. But there, there is, there, there are guys who just, no, we're not doing that. We're the military. We use satellites and guns. We don't use we don't use psychics. We don't use and they kind of brush it off. But it's yeah. I mean that's disappointing because with things like okay, forget the forget the NATO general. What about Osama bin Laden? What about Al Baghdadi? What about Malaysian flight was it three seventy? I mean those yeah. are examples. Those are two examples of a high value target and of an aircraft. Why wouldn't that be utilized? Yeah, but see, you hit a key word there, um, having, having to do with not believing it and relating it to actually fear, um, and the word psychic. One of the, one of the reasons why we really insisted on using a new term here, uh, mm. even though it really, Same. really encompassed anything that different when you look over the course of centuries and millennium, you go back to primitive persons, you don't find that there's evidence of, of ESP and the paranormal phenomenon, even in, in tribal or the shamans in, in um, Central America or uh, elsewhere. The phenomenon is around, uh, it has been, uh, but there's a fear, and a, some of that is image, some of that is cultural driven, uh, some of it is religious based, 
and you know it's, it's tough to overcome some of these these uh, belief systems that are negative to the field um, when the individual has grown up in it and been sort of indoctrinated to say that that is invalid science and finding a lot of good reasons why it's not scientific, which you can easy to do. You know, we don't have a good theory, so right away you have a non-scientific phenomenon, and we're applying it. <laughs> but a lot of things have been unscientific like that that are worked out. So. Uh, yeah. But it, the the process of evaluating it is scientific, yeah. and that's a lot of people don't want to. Many people at that time in the seventies did not want to confront. Um, now I think is a, a lot easier time because the media has a lot of um, good programs and a lot of good opportunities for learning about the the topic. You know, I'm a member of the International Remote Viewing Association. In fact, I'm one of the directors. And uh, we're, we're now moving into a, a full speed ahead on all the major social platforms and you know, letting others know. And there, there are thousands of people already following the topics. So it's becoming more mainstream, at least in terms of the understanding of what this is. Yeah. And it is, is a natural phenomenon. It doesn't need to be feared. Uh, and it can be scientifically studied. Uh, nobody is claiming 100% accuracy, and we, we qualify what we can do, what we can't do. And, uh, another example where we, where we actually uh, did quite well in, in terms of um, the, the intelligence task given to us was to look at a, a given fugitive. And this fugitive had been on the run for two or three years, and he was internationally wanted. So once, once you hit the international list, then it's okay for um, a U.S. intelligence organization to chip in if they so if they ask to do so. Otherwise, we we don't track uh, U.S. Uh, citizens. So um, this guy was on the run, uh, and the the customs department contacted us and said, um, "I don't care what your probability is. Is it one out of ten? One out of hundred? See what you can do. You know, have nothing to lose at this stage. We really want this guy." Um, he was a customs official at was a turncoat and left all kinds of drug traffic come into South Florida. Uh, and uh, so all we had was his name. It could be anywhere. So we worked on that. And uh, one of the, and I had the thought, I was the one doing the tasking on this. At that time, I was actually uh, the, uh, the chief of the unit. So I, uh, I actually asked the individual to... Uh, not just focus on where he is now, uh, but where will he be when he can be found? Because if he's on the move, it doesn't do any good to yeah. describe yeah. area at this point today or tomorrow. Yeah. It'll be next week because by, by the time you mobilize law enforcement people and get the word out, you know, he gets, he's gone. So and he may not have known that he's ever there. So that was the tasking. And uh, one of the individuals came up with some very specific locational data, there's the names and whatever, and, and other aspects that made it very clear that if this information is correct, the fugitive will be in the northern part of Wyoming uh, within the next week or two. So the OLO, the be on the lookout, went out from by the customs official to the you know, troops, the, the units in the field, including the local law enforcement people, the Montana and the Wyoming State Police were brought into it. 
and uh, given his bolo to the lookout, be on the lookout notice. And uh, shortly thereafter, they observe him in one of the campgrounds right nearby Yellowstone, which is where we said uh, you should be looking in that general area. So here was a case where we didn't go to the exact spot, but we mobilized the, the resources available. Uh, and then, fortunately, um, the law enforcement people involved were astute enough to really look hard and to observe and detect that, hey, this individual does seem out of place. So maybe this is the one that these guys are looking for. Sure enough, he was. And then uh, they effected a, a very nice, <laughs> I, I like to say search and rescue. <laughs> but but uh, they got him out of the trailer, yeah. you know, like he was camping in and with it with this i think it's a standard approach and but yet, yet it works where somebody bangs on the trailer door and says hey i can't get my car started can you, can you help start it and so the fugitive comes out of course and that's it is one step and bam all yeah well, <laughs> they got it <laughs> well i self i'll make a note to myself if i'm ever on the run i will not answer the door from my, my trailer <laughs> Okay, I don't care. Fix. I'll I'll leave a jack outside. I'll be like, you go fix it outside. No, huh? Are you with those? Are you with the remote viewers? No. <laughs> that's that's how you make people think you're crazy. So you knock on someone's door. You hear them screaming from the other side. Are you from the remote viewers? They're like, all right, man. Um, but but so these are real world cases, and it's you know they they don't like right they don't like the name psychic so they you know remote viewing and you have to i mean it's like with the f117 the stealth fighter the first real kind of stealth aircraft we created sr71 had some but they they named it the f117 to call it a fighter jet because they wanted the best pilots from the air force and they knew if they named it a bomber or an attack aircraft they couldn't get them so despite having this world changing this paradigm shifting technology stealth they still had to change the name. So there's this weird, despite these like heights of new scientific innovation, you still have like the most base kind of human problems where it's, Hey, they don't like the name. And it's like, what you don't like the, what it's a special access program. And we're using, you know, equations from a defected Soviet. Okay. We'll call it a fighter jet. So there are these sort of, yeah, almost childish human uh, snags at the height of these things, but like stealth or not like, that's not really a good example. Science is science is science is science. It is what it is, whether you like it or not. You know, if we had come from, uh, you know, if, uh, Leo Szilard and Albert Einstein came to the U S and wrote to FDR and said, Hey, uh, a uranium bomb is possible. If FDR just said, I don't like it, that doesn't make it any less feasible for another nation to create. If uh, Unit 731 in World War II developing uh, bioweapons, if if we uncovered it and said we don't like it, it doesn't make it any less real. And we ended up bringing those scientists back uh, in kind of like an alternative form of Operation Paperclip. If you don't like it, it, it does not make it any less real. And if you don't master it, you know, uh, uh, who was Enrico Fermi, said that the hydrogen bomb is an evil thing. They had just detonated the A-bomb, and the idea of something a 1,000 times or 10,000 times stronger was unthinkable. But when uh, when he went to present it to, um, to Truman, Truman asked, can the Soviets do it? And he said, within a couple of years, yes. So we have to do it, regardless of if we like it. 
we have to do it. So I'm saying all of that to say it doesn't matter if we don't like the connotations of, ooh, psychics and mystics. If it is a science, and if that science can be shaped into a weapon, we cannot like it all day long. That doesn't make it any less real for Russia, for China, for India, for anyone. So we, I feel like we have to keep pursuing this and pursue it relentlessly. There was another word that really um, hurt us in the early days of the program. And that was kind of inadvertent. But the, at that time in the 70s, there was a lot of effort in what's called mind control. Mm-hmm. Mind control. Brainwash. Controlling your own mind, you know, you, you, the, the, the uh, activities nowadays with the, 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 the holistic groups really, really focus on that. But back in the 70s, the term mind control, to me, because I'd been studying the field, didn't bother me at all. But we had one high-level official actually cancel one, uh, one of the um, proposals, uh, proposals that we had generated for additional funding because he didn't want anything to do with controlling minds. And he envisioned that we were trying to control somebody else's mind, <laughs> not not our own. <laughs> so after that, we didn't use the term mind control in any context whatsoever, <laughs> even though we do what was meant by it in the general uh, publications that were available throughout. It's, it's absolutely insane. I mean, another example, I'm not sure how accurate it is, but like computer. Computer used to refer to a human that computed and it was for artillery uh, firing tables that they would calculate in World War II. And when we wanted to develop the hydrogen bomb, John von Neumann was contracted by DARPA to help develop the first computers, ENIAC or MANIAC. But it was about computing successive equations in the propagation over generations of a thermonuclear uh, reaction. But there were some people that didn't like the term computer because they thought it only referred to humans. So again, developing a super bomb that could wipe out a city but we have these things where it's like well i don't like that term (laughs) i mean i mean imagine if jfk gave the moon speech and the guys at nasa said uh you know i don't like that idea of going by the end of this decade uh it should be you know i want to use a different term use 10 years but you, you we have these weird things where we can't we can't pursue it. We can't go after the ARPANET. What if someone didn't like the name the ARPANET? And so we just didn't pursue the internet. There, it, it makes no sense. And again, it doesn't care about anyone's feelings. It's going to persist regardless. And if we don't master it and become the best at it, someone else will. And it's just, it, 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 it's, I wouldn't say so much as it's blood boiling. I would say it's just kind of upsetting. Yeah, so when, it doesn't take too long to, to discover these problems with, with phraseology. So, so you dodge around them, you, you yeah. create new words, or, or redefine, redefine to the, without stretching things too far <laughs> what you're really talking about. You can imagine the difficulty I had writing contracts for the, for the government bureaucratic chain of command on this topic um, without actually talking about psychic functioning. <laughs> you can't just dance around it. It's yeah. So what helped me was the, the link to uh, remote sensing. So at that time in the 70s, um, airplanes and, and satellites had these, these sensors on board, these optical sensors 
cameras and later on radar. So these are remote sensors, the remote sensing you know, devices. So borrowing from that idea of remote viewing, you kind of float along from the idea of remote sensing. And had it not been for the use of the term remote sensing, already, already uh, in general uh, terminology um, in the 70s, I probably would have chosen remote sensing for this phenomenon. Yeah. It would have been too confusing uh, to have two remote, totally opposite types of remote sensors yeah. coming out. So, or even remote perception it would have been a better term because remote viewing is, is not just the, the visual aspects of, of um, paranormal perception or psychic perception. You, you get all the other sensory inputs as well. So remote perception would have been a better term technically, but it, it was a little more difficult to transition to that term after several years of uh, usage as remote viewing, which was very useful as, as a breakaway from some of the, uh, the older terms, which um, people really, really felt uncomfortable with. Uh, it's un unfortunate that many people that have good talent sometimes come across, uh, you know, not, not, not too trustworthy or, or maybe may too, uh, too accepting of, of the phenomenon. So we, we had to come in with a really a tough stance to get past uh, those criticisms. We, we really are looking at this weird phenomenon as, as diligently as we can from a scientific point of view, keeping all the scientific protocols straight as possible, making sure there's no way somebody could accuse us of, of peeking around the corner to see the target. So all, all these extra extra efforts to, to maintain security uh, of the objective of the target, as we would call it, and the, the data that's being generated so somebody couldn't accuse us of, of um, having somebody shuffle the right data in when somebody else wasn't looking like some of the magicians do yeah. <laughs> when they're trying to replicate this phenomenon and which is so obvious <laughs> when you think about it, what they what they're trying to do and 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 and, and in the 70s there was quite an attack from them from the magicians uh, the population against the phenomenon now, now maybe they felt threatened well yeah too. you're cutting in on their business <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the some of the people and eventually came into the field were amateur magicians. Um, Daryl Bennett Cornell, for example, was an amateur magician. Uh, Russell Target, SRI, uh, also similar. So, and other people I've run into since then started studying stage magic and then, and then realized, well, yeah, well, it's a good thing to do this because then, then you can identify real quickly if somebody's trying to trick you when you're doing a session or something like that. But it also um, heightens your perception, your subliminal perception and your ordinary perception. So, so you're on the lookout for um, trickery, which sometimes yeah. happens. Yeah. And, and in a way, ironically, the the fear of of being written off as hucksters or people that are you know pulling parlor tricks the the gold standard uh things you would you would put into place to ensure that there was no trickery that there was no peaking actually just proved the point even more just how real of a phenomenon it was because your experiments and your trials were so airtight <clears throat> more so than normal because you had to you had to prove you were better than you know the average I guess uh, skeptic, um, it actually showed even more definitively that it that 
It's a phenomena. It's a scientific phenomena. Yeah, and then and going a step further here, um, true, you'd have to secure the objective, the target, you know, and you only provide the information to remove your relevant. And, and later on in the program, this is really nothing but an abstract reference number. Yeah. So that, that was all uh, provided. And so there's no, you know, queuing of names or anything. Although I have to admit, when you get to an operational project, you have to locate somebody. You, you want to, you don't, nobody knows where the person is. So you may as well start with a name and not, not mess with intermediate steps. But in a research environment, when, when you work with targets that are in the future, now, now you're elevating this to another level. Yeah. Uh, because so it's in the future. So there's no way <laughs> you can really, really cheat on that one. Yeah. The target doesn't even exist yet. Yeah. So describe it. So th this is another stumbling point for science. This is, I've been finding out that this is probably the, the most significant one. Um, many scientists that are skeptical can kind of go along with the idea, the old the old concept of, of telepathy, mind to mind contact. Even though the original term, which came out of the early days of the radio technology, Marconi and, mm -hmm. and the development of the, of the radio and the radio waves, that followed from that that logic. Although the number too many experiments early on in, in the Stargate program and elsewhere clearly showed that there's no electromagnetic transmission involved here. <laughs> you know, this is, you just can't explain it by electromagnetics. So, so that was an astounding block, and it still is for many people. Yeah. But when you move into the future, this is a really yeah. different. Yeah, it's a whole nother level. Because now somebody's going to say, well, how can you describe something that hasn't been selected yet? Oh, and even worse, uh, it doesn't even exist yet. Uh, yeah, when you think about it, a lot of the spontaneous experiences that people have are of that nature. They, they have a, a, a premonition about something in the future or a precognitive dream or something, and a, a week or two later, the, the exact thing happens. So you, you already have, at a personal level, you have the experience of perceiving things in the future that don't exist now. So uh, in the laboratory, these are more difficult to set up. And um, I did set up some experiments involving future news, uh, three days in the future and seven days in the future that were successful. But those pictures didn't exist at the time of the sessions. Um, and when you think about all the issues, that all the facts, all the apps that have to come together to create a future news photograph, you know, say seven days ahead, and uh, a person can sit down and describe accurately what it looked like and in the, in the, the relative geometries and do very specific things about that picture. It's, how does that happen? You know, this is mind-boggling when you think about the future being perceived like this. So it's, it's a stumbling block. But those of us that work with the field would say, well, it's just another aspect of the capability. And the challenge to science should be not not to run away from this, but to say, well, what is the significance of, of this? Yeah. Does, does, it, does it open up a dialogue between us and other ways of thinking about reality? So it's tough because traditional science wants to, and, and wants to stay up as much as possible out of any, anything that's extraordinary or too extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, and so we run into a stumbling block there. We 
sometimes can't even say it's precognitive of a target yet doesn't exist. We just say it, it, it was the target, or use, use the general term, psi phenomenon. Psi being the 23rd letter of the alphabet that was coined in the 1940s to, by researchers in the field, the parapsychologists, uh, to represent this whole range of phenomena with different labels, the same phenomenon, but basically different labels, clairvoyance, remote viewing, precognition, um, clairsentiness, all these terms boil around the same phenomenon. So the word psi is a, is a shorthand way of, of saying all of these, yeah. <laughs> all of these steps apply. <laughs> yeah, yeah, every, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it, it's hard to, yeah, when looking forward in time, um, I was going to say, it kind of sounds like the best weapon you could possibly have is just a thesaurus to name it differently and secure funding. Yeah. <laughs> it's just call it, you know, remote viewing, geo-disconnected yeah. perception. You could just yeah. make yeah make it whatever you want. But yeah, it's... Well, yeah, some reason would just say anomalous perception. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting, but it's an awful term. I don't like to use it. Yeah. You just... <laughs> just I mean, I, I wonder if you could even just like, just say it's... A classified technology and you could I wonder if you could get funding that way instead of even calling it psychic be like oh uh, it's classified program 1197 yeah sure you can you say it has to do with uh some kind of a psychological aspect if you want to bring the human element into it more directly yeah you're right you can just you say it's just but it, at some level, you, you do have to explain it to some committee. Yeah. Now, you know, there is the, the House and Senate Intelligence Committee. The Army views in the Pentagon that look at the, the details of, of um, this, the um, so-called covert programs, um, classified programs like this. Yeah. There are things that you have to then get through. Uh, uh, even though it might be in block money, um, there's still somebody in the chain of command that needs to know a little something about it. Um, Dr. Graf, I'll edit this out. I need to run to the restroom real quick. Are you are you cool with keep talking for a little while? Sure. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll be right I'll be right back. If you got to use the restroom, you can. Um, but um, yeah. So uh-huh. what I wanted to say about perceiving into the, like the future is, so I've told this story before on this podcast, and I think it's probably perhaps most fitting now of all guests would be you. I mean, I was a biology major in college, super science oriented at the time. I was an atheist, cold reduction materialist. You know, mm-hmm. if you had told me about phenomena, phenomena then, I would have said mm-hmm. you're crazy. You know, I was very, I was probably like the colloquial, 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 colloquial Pentagon official who would have, you know, brushed it off. Um, the story I've told before and I'll, and I'll tell now is, so on, on April 15th, 2014, I lost my older brother to suicide. He was 27 at the time. I was 23 at the time. I, we, had, we had both been up, up in Maryland, um, and I had gone down to visit my girlfriend at the time, who was still at the University of Georgia. And I had gone down for like a, maybe like a, like a week. And, you know, I had, I had known there were, there were issues with my brother, but he was seeing a therapist. He had, he had come home. And it seemed like things were getting back on track. So it's not to say that like there was this pending sense of suicide, right? And um, so the night before, the night before, um, my girlfriend woke me up because she said I was kind of thrashing around. And 
the dream I had, and I always leave out the specific details just for privacy of my own family, but the only way I can describe it is, is it's like if a little like drone was hovering over your shoulder. I was viewing my brother in third person, like in his room. And it was, I could tell, you know, something was off. I didn't witness him commit suicide, but I, but I saw him, you know, find, you know, finding his gun. I saw him, um, kind of moving stuff around, like, you know, making his bed, whatever. And I knew that this was going to happen. I I just, I knew it was going to happen. I could feel it. And I, and I woke up and I was just sweating and I was, and I didn't say anything to her because I just, I just figured it was a nightmare, right? I just, I was just like, oh, thank God it was just a dream. And the next day I found out that he did indeed commit suicide. And I, and it's not that, it's not that I had a hunch and it was, you know, and it turned out a different way. Exactly what I thought was going to happen from the, from the method of suicide to the time that it was occurring. I was viewing it and I later looked it up on Google Maps. I was exactly 599 miles away. So I, I, and I didn't tell anyone that I I eventually, I think I first told my mom that in like 2019. I didn't even tell my girlfriend at the time. I just said I was having a nightmare. I kept that to myself for five years because one, I knew if I told anyone I'd sound crazy. And two, I had no way to, what was that? I mean, what was that? And it's just insanity. But I look back at that now and, you know, it's been seven and a half years. I can, you know, I can think about my brother now without it necessarily being soul crushing, right? It's the more time between a tragedy you grow and you kind of, you know, develop, I guess, a a numbness to it or an an exception, uh, an acceptance of it. But to me, that was when I was having that dream was late at night and he, he, he took his life the next like morning. So not only did I see exactly what was happening, I saw it about 12 hours before it happened. To me, that is, and there's, you know, no, I can't verify this. I can't prove this to anyone. Am I lying? Who knows? No, I'm not. But to anyone that really wants, no, you can't find that objectively. I can't give you a, you know, a, a test tube and say, here it is. But to me, that is, although an absolutely horrific experience and a traumatizing experience, the scientist in, in me says that was also, wow. I mean, that was a phenomenon. That was a phenomenon that it wasn't, we've all had the hunch and I don't mean to put it, we've all had the hunch where you think of a friend that you haven't talked to in forever, you know, and then he calls you five minutes. I was, dude, I was just thinking about you. Like, yeah, sure. That happens. That's always interesting. But to me, or, you know, I, I had a dream that this stock was going to go up. So I bought it and it went up. Okay, sure. To me, it is so infinitesimally small that, that. I experienced something as as improbable as a as a sibling, my own blood and flesh, committing suicide, and I I didn't have the dream a year before. It wasn't kind of a recurring fear. It came out of nowhere, and I saw it exactly how it happened, and then it happened. 
to me, that is per- perhaps that's why I'm I'm so interested and in why I'm having you on this podcast is 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 when I look at this stuff, I I, I can't write it off as oh, it's some parlor tricks or broken clocks right twice a day. I have experienced it firsthand, dead sober. Yeah. It's real. It is 100% real. I don't claim to know what it is. I don't claim to be able to explain it. No, it wasn't a double blind gold standard or double plus whatever. But I know that it was real. And the fact that the CIA was interested in it during the Cold War and your experiences, those synchronicity experiences with the that with the customs agent, with the plane, with Delta Force and the NATO general. I mean, this stuff is real. It is a science. 200 years ago, doctors didn't understand why when they did surgery on someone and then wiped the knife off on the shirt and did the surgery on the next person, why they got sick. They didn't understand germ theory, but nonetheless, germs existed. Objective reality had transferable, transmutable diseases. This is a real phenomena. And we can we can put our heads in the sand and pretend it's not real and pretend it's ooh, or we can start looking at it for what it is. It's a science no more or less real than than my ability to, I don't know, put water in a bottle or to have a fire extinguisher that can extinguish flames. Like it's real, just like flight, just like nuclear weapons. And I know I'm ranting now, but that's kind of where my passion about this comes from is I know it's real. Well, you know, uh, some of the, the, the strongest supporters for, for remote viewing, the remote viewing program for Stargate and the government at the uh, congressional level, uh, there were occasions when giving a briefing to update them in the, in the program, um, they would ask us to stay back after the um, others left. So then we'd be just a few of us with, with perhaps one, one of the senators or one of the, one of the representatives. And very often they would relate a story, sure. not quite as dramatic as yours, but why this one incident in their life yeah. really, really makes them realize that we we're onto something. So they didn't need the, the, the hundreds of trials and, and statistics, even though it's nice to have and you, you really need to develop that wherever you can. But it's that one mind-blowing experience that, that many times turn people around and, and, and give a lot of attention to this, this innate phenomenon that they experienced firsthand themselves. So that's, we ran into a number of people that told us incidents that were really, really startling that, uh, you know, that, that affirmed to them and to us also that they had a, a valid experience. It was not something that they, it was a random thing they just happened to think of. Um, I can remember one instance where a high-level official, again, they usually don't want to, to talk in the presence of their contemporaries. It's, it's only the few of us with the program. <laughs> only them. Yeah. <laughs> After the doors closed, yeah. others can go home or go back to their office. But the one individual at a very high level um, told us one again. He said, "You preamble it like you did." You know, I'm a skeptic. You know, I heard about this time to time, but this is a ridiculous, non-scientific nonsense. I don't anything to do with it. So, um, so one night uh, he wakes up from a, a vivid dream. And he's not even sure it's a dream, but 
is in the dream is he's telling us and it's really tough for him to, to go into this it really i could tell he's he, the emotion is still there he, even though the incident must have happened 30 years earlier and uh he said in this this vivid um dreamlike image his daughter comes to him and apologizes for what she did and uh, said i have to leave now um goodbye dad and um, a short time later, the police car comes up with the bad news that the daughter was killed in an auto accident at that time. Jesus. Um, you know, these are the things that reach out and, and grab people when they're unaware and they're powerful experiences. And you, you get one of these, and uh, you're going to be really listening to others. It's not just for your own benefit, but become more sympathetic to individuals that, that, that relate these experiences and, uh, and you're more likely to have people that tell you their own uh, experiences too maybe not as static. Um you have to create a, a safe environment mm -hmm. a trusted environment and I think one of the reasons we were successful um, in addition to some of the really great support that we got that, at congressional and also at some high scientific levels as well. Not every every high level scientist was a skeptic, um, but the, the the fact that we had a you might say a, a bubble where we were, we felt safe, we had an environment where we could actually work, and then in the unimpeded, you know, except for the the usual stuff you have to do, administration and report writing and and attending staff meetings and all the stuff that comes with the bureaucratic management. But we had that environment of, um, of it's safe here. You, you, it's okay to do this. It, it, it's all right to do reviewing. It's all right to have these experiences. And uh, so that really made a big difference for us on the program and to, to create this favorable environment at, at Fort Meade at the buildings in. Yeah. Um, and also the researchers at SRI also created that atmosphere. You know, hey, you're here to, to learn. You know, it's okay to be right. It's okay to be wrong. Don't, don't worry about it. Don't be self-conscious. Don't be afraid to look like an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you mess up, you know. There are some first time I, the first time I did this, I felt like a real idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hey, some respected scientists tried to turn lead into gold. They tried it for hundreds of years, man. Egg on my face. It's okay. That's that is the scientific method. Sure, but you know, I still think that uh, regardless of what we accomplish and uh, how people view the Stargate program now after all these years, there's been a tremendous spinoff from it. So uh, the value may be more than a few of the spectaculars that we did on the program. And I'll just mention some of the really highlight ones, but we had a lot of good. Um, successes with the, the technology kind of projects that are not that interesting as well. Um, very unique things about certain kinds of tests that were there or the appearance of a certain submarine and nobody expected that kind of a vehicle to even be under design. Um, so we, we had those, but but now uh, in the years since, uh, you know, we're looking at 25 years now since the program closed, I look around and I see all this interest and what, what came of it, you know, the interest that we generated. And I'm just talking about me personally, but I'm talking about the researchers, all the people that were on the uh, remote viewing team and quite a few over the years. Um, we, look, we can look back and say, well, look, look around the, the globe and look at the interests and look at the acceptance and the phenomenon 
even though we call it remote viewing, it has spin-offs into other areas too, called, you know, we talked about synchronicity and, and uh, you, you go into other aspects, even, even uh, from the holistic point of view, we can talk about healing as well uh, and linking with the holistic side of thinking. But the program has spawned a lot of interest in these diverse areas too, not just remote viewing. And uh, I think it is points toward a kind of holistic thinking. Um, and uh, it's not just an experience I have or that a small team has called the viewers, but that you and I and others, our friends, neighbors, uh, people down the street also uh, can share in this and um, benefit from uh, what the phenomenon can offer to us, for us. So um, this is where I think uh, where if we have a legacy at all, I think here is where it's heading. Uh, they're opening up. It's allowing others to come in and, and take and study the area and discover for themselves. They may not become top-notch remote viewers and, and join the latest uh, psychic detective workforce, for example. But they'll, they'll get enough out of this to to pay attention to their hunches. And, and their dream life, because I think I'm, I'm quite an advocate for the, for the dreaming, because I'm also a member of the International Association for the Study of Dreams, and, uh, in addition to the International Remote Viewing Association. So um, in, the, in the dream side, which is uh, like your experience, sometimes, uh, many times, an easier way to, to experience uh, this phenomenon, even in lower scales, not, not the dramatic one like you, like you did. Um, so you, you learn to experience and accept this as part of your own being, and uh, you can be alerted. Well, for example, years ago, I wrote a, a paper for a journal, and, I, and it had to, had to do with uh, what can you do with this? And I said, well, if more people in the general public would, would listen, maybe to the, the teenagers, for example, their children, uh, their spouses, tragedies like we just saw in Oxford, Michigan, or in, in Parkland, the, that school in, in Florida, and others, maybe maybe their daughter or son had a premonition and was afraid to tell somebody about this. Yeah. Even, they, even, even if they were not in the direct line of fire, um, I can remember looking at a, a, CM, a CCN interview uh, after the Marab murder building explosion in Oklahoma City in 1995, uh, um, when that terrorist, um, uh, Mark I think his name was. Timothy McVeigh. Uh, and the TV was covering a, a ceremony, uh, a memorial, some weeks later. And they interviewed one of the women that happened to be there at the memorial. And she was, of course, quite distraught. And she got to talking. And she says, if only, if only, if only. So the, the commentator says, if only what? If only I had listened to my husband. Because that morning at breakfast table, he said, I had this horrible dream of being engulfed by fire. I don't think I should go to work today. Something is terribly wrong. And she said, oh, come on. It was just a dream. Get out of the house. <laughs> Get to work on time. Of course, that was the end of it. He never came back. Now she's suffering from grief because she she kicked, she, she discouraged him for listening and paying attention to this really powerful precognitive dream that he had. Think of how many people have these things. How many children at Oakland you know, might have had such dreams or the other tragedies that are happening? 
unfortunately, with the school system, uh, not just there, but in, in crowds. Um, and then in almost any general public appearance right now, you have to be careful. When I go, when I travel anywhere, my modus operandi is the night before I travel or, the week, or during the week before, I try to dream ahead and say, what do I need to know that might pose a danger threat to myself and my family and others um, in, this, in this trip ahead? And there are times when I actually have perceived the, the accident that I would come to. Fortunately, it wasn't mine. But um, these are the kinds of things I believe in the future. We parents should pay more attention to not just their spouse's uh, dreams uh, or impression, not just dreams but hunches, but the, the teenagers. You know, there's there's a lot of um, potential here for, for um, helping prevent such tragedies. We don't always have to allocate more more funding for, for police work. We have our own ability to be on the lookout for danger ahead of our own path. At the on a side note, when I was at the University of Georgia, man, I used to if I was in a big lecture hall with like three hundred kids, I would always make sure I was either in the front row or the back row, right by the <laughs> exit. During, I'd find people were where there were crowds. I always would be like, I would I would take a long way around campus. I'd I was always like, I'm not going to be in the middle of this when this happens. But um, that wasn't really premonition. That was more so just my own my own OCD. Yeah. But um, with yeah, with this, it's it's almost like, I mean, I mean, it's a real thing that we can't ignore, and it's not that you and I are going to figure it out, but what you can do is, I mean, I mean, the Wright brothers, right? I mean, they, no pun intended, but I mean, they developed a little crappy thing made out of like balsa wood and like fabric, and they're you know flying around in a three piece suit with a top hat. Like, no, did they? Did they create international travel? No, but man, they they split the door open for for biplanes, for propeller driven aircraft, for jets, into the rocket age, to walking on the moon, to now I can for you know a reasonable amount of money, considering what it is, I could take a flight across the country that would normally take four days of driving. I can do in six hours while sitting in a chair watching a movie. So. There has to be some humility to be like, no, I don't think that I'm necessarily going to crack the case on this, but let's at least get a wedge in there and start pushing it forward. You know, Joseph Lister developed the antiseptic technique. No, he didn't really, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that he created the COVID vaccine, but it started, or he created hazmat suits, but it started uh, an understanding of like, oh, there's something with sick people that is we can't see that goes to other people. So just you start that that discussion and you start the the scientific exploration of it. And, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. I didn't invent the microphone. I didn't invent the, the computer or the light or the camera, but I get to use it to talk to you. So we can build these sort of stepping stones to make the future better. And you may wonder, well, what's the point if I'm not going to see it? Well, that, well, now we're getting to the whole philosophy of civilization. A society grows right. A society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they won't sit under. Well, you, you move the needle forward because, Hey, I get to drink clean water. 
You know, I have their pharmaceutical medications. I have a, a refrigerator. I have some chicken and some eggs and some frozen broccoli from God knows how many miles away. Like I have an air conditioner. These aren't things I invented. I didn't invent cotton. I didn't invent, you know, soundproof panels, but I do get to live with them. And to me, there's something in there for, I mean, just push the needle forward in civilization. And even if you don't want to get into that whole grandiose, let's improve society, that rose-colored idealism ideology, at the very least, it's a science. It's a science that can and should be pushed forward. And if that still isn't enough, well, then you can just go to the most base level of, of the human mind. Well, it can be used as a weapon and it will eventually be used against you. So we have to master this. I mean, we got to be the leader in supercomputers. We got to be the leader in cyber warfare. We got to be the leader in stealth technology and nuclear missiles and yada, yada, yada. That includes this. You know, we have to be the first to walk on the moon. We have to put satellites up. We have to have quantum encryption. We have to have nuclear bunkers. We, You have to be the best. So you can choose all these other kind of happy reasons to pursue it but at the very least you know there's a great documentary about norad and it starts with what drove men to build a city inside of a mountain fear at the very least <laughs> drive by fear that what happens when what happens when we don't pursue it but an enemy nation say it's china say it's russia what happens yeah it's fear and survivability yeah so Probability is actually behind, I think, a lot of the phenomena that I've been talking about, if you go back millennium. Yeah. So the, I think early early people, uh, you can find traces of this, of course, in in, in the in, in jungles and whatever. I still have that. The survival ability of, of seeing around the corner, they might just have a different name for it, you know, yeah. something, something or they give it some other label. So it's there, and it was survival-oriented. So that, that survival is also driving, driving yes. us. We want, we want to survive. So, uh, and when push comes to shove, I think, if you're in a really tense situation, then that's a time when um, then you will actually experience uh, your own um, latent high abilities. You know, I can, I've experienced some of that myself in, in remote river travel. <clears throat> One of my, my hobbies years ago, not so much in recent years, was uh, whitewater canoeing in the, in the Canadian Arctic. Oh, Lord. And You're I'm mad. Talk, I'm talking about rivers like, a, like a 200, 400, 600 miles long. <laughs> Being on a river anywhere from three to six weeks. So it, it is a difficult river. So not to mention the environment. So the, the, the key, one of the keys here is looking out for your buddies, you know, be, you're concerned about safety, the survival, you know, not just <laughs> the best run through the rapids, but uh, beyond that, you know, if something happens, how do you get out of here, you know, or how do you avoid something or, or, or help somebody else that might be, need help. And uh, I know on one occasion, and there were probably a few others that were close to it, um, similar, I actually had um, a, it's hard to call it a, a dream or an image. It's kind of like what you had described earlier uh, with, with your brother's situation uh, of, an, of an image of somebody trying reaching out from some, something uh, that needed help. And this is early in the morning uh, before anybody else was out of the tents. Um, there was nobody missing from our tent. 
but I didn't have time to think about it. You know, this was a very disturbing image. It looked like a call for help, although I didn't hear it. And um, impulsively, I ran down to the got as fast as quickly as I could. I ran down to the river about a quarter mile away, River Camden and Hill, to get out of the mosquitoes. So I get down to the river. Here's one of our colleagues uh, struggling to get out of the icy water. He had slipped in. He got up early to go fishing. He couldn't get out of the water. So here was a case of survival. Uh, the need not just for my own survival, but as the little group, the little tribe, our little community group, uh, we're working together. We want to get through this. So even in contemporary times, you've experienced this, like I did on that canoe trip. Um, so that, that's, I think, what's, what's here for all of us. We, we can be on the lookout for our companions um, and keep them out of trouble, too. Like, like I mentioned earlier about the, um, the kids are being shot up in school. You know, I, I, the, there might be ways of, of, of listening to their premonitions and, and stepping in to, to avoid some of that tragedy. It seems like there's almost... It seems like the with you know people dying, whether it's that that guy's daughter in the car crash, or my brother, or you with the individual stuck in the ice, or all these. Actually, ironically enough, the the Delta Force guy I'm friends with tells the story about how he was halfway across the world on some classified mission, and he he just knew he knew instantly that something had gone horribly wrong with his mom, and you know he was in it's probably still classified whatever he was doing, <laughs> but. He found he eventually found like the equivalent of like a payphone in whatever third world country he was in, and and found a way to contact, and indeed had contacted his father, and his mom had had a heart attack. She she survived, but here's a guy who is in, you know some denied territory with the CIA or Delta Force CIA, whatever he was in at the time, and he just and again this isn't a this isn't a, a, a Timothy Leary you know kind of loose flowing. This is I mean this guy is your your Delta Force cutout. I mean you know shaved head, mustache, built. I mean, just, you know, G.I. Joe. And so he's not a guy at all that, you know, it's not like he's taken LSD and stuff. Here's this clean-cut guy who had this experience. And since and because of that, has always been a believer in this. And to me, I always love pointing to the 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 case of Dale. His name's Dale Comstock, actually. You're, you're Dale Graff. But <laughs> Dale Comstock, he was the youngest ever member of Delta Force and was in the CIA Special Activities Division for for several years. So kind of, again, some synchronicities with you, Delta Force CIA. But, um, but I mean, he still talks about it. He's been on this podcast like 50 times. He'll still talk about it, you know? And again, it's not that he's, you know, peace, love, Woodstock, man. He is a, he is a Delta Force assassin, but he'll, he'll talk about it as clearly as he'll talk about, you know, bullet drop on a sniper to explosive concussive waves when you're breaching a door. He'll talk about it as scientific as that he'll go like oh yeah no no we can perceive others when we're in harm and we can like see the future and remote view those that we love it seems like there's almost like almost like an sos when someone's about to die there's some sort of like psychic sos and either those who are maybe family or if it's a significant other or with you, that you know, that little community, you're out there going down the Arctic rivers like you are a unit. You, the unit survives on everyone surviving. It seems like it's almost the equivalent of like a flare. It's like a 
It's something. It gives off something to those who we are psychically connected to. That's just, again, just like you said, it's okay to be wrong. I don't know what it is, but just observing it, trying to come up with a hypothesis, which in a hundred years, someone might listen to this podcast and we sound as goofy as alchemists turning lead into gold. But it seems that there is something that happens that sets off a ripple effect. And it even seems that it can, that ripple effect can also be throughout space time. It can go backwards in time, but it can tell you that something is about to happen when something is gone. And who knows, maybe there's alternatives. Maybe there's also really good things. Maybe there's like someone getting married or having a kid or who knows, but there seems to be something that just, it connects these two nodes through some, you know, they've shown it's not electromagnetic, so we don't know, but maybe there's a field that we don't know about. Maybe there's a form of connection that we don't know about. I, I don't know. Oh, yeah, sure. In fact, one of the, um, what, what started um, the, the official study of the phenomenon back in England, in, in London in 1882 or four, uh, was based on a study of these spontaneous experiences people had, premonition of people that were about to die or had died. So, yeah, that, that was what, t- what started the, the whole field that eventually became Psy Research. So, and like you also said, it's not only the, the tragic, although that's what gets the, the attention, um, but it's also the good news, too. You know, not everything's going to be tragic. Yeah. And you get this happy feeling, you wonder why, and, and, then, and then, you, then you learn later on, you just, you just won something or whatever, or you, uh, some of you... There's a good correlation to a good news, whatever the incident is, even though it may not be directly related. But, uh, so yeah, there's if you if you're going to get the good, I mean the bad, you also have to be open for the good. Yeah, I think that's where synchronicity comes in because synchronicity seems to be more oriented toward the good news. Uh, uh, things that happen uh, unconsciously that that allow you to 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 find what you were desperately looking for or needed to know even though you didn't realize it at the time. Um, so that's good news. Uh, so a, a synchronistic link which ties in with precognition, I think, is is the, the area you're, you're you're talking about here uh, that we can all experience is not not just the bad news. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just it's not just the the evil, the tragic, the heartbreaking. It's also it's also the beautiful. It seems to be anything that's on an extreme. It, it's some sort of I don't know. It seems like it perturbs some field. It seems like a like a black hole. It's like there's some or like a planet or a star. It seems to like it press on the the fabric of space time and it, and it morphs it. And I, I again I don't know. It's we are. You know, we're approaching. We're, we're the right brothers. We don't. We don't know what it is, but it seems like there's something there. It's all the more reason that it's just. Uh, I don't see, how, man. If the military is not going to do it, you'd think, you'd think like a wealthy private foundation would pursue it. Well, there are there are small research groups around. You have the Ryan Research Center in Durham, North Carolina. It's very active in basic research as well as pursuing the application areas you have small groups here and there um and some universities too there's a, a group in, in germany several groups in fact so yeah it's, they're there there's just not one big consolidated effort i'm not sure 
if that's really necessary at this stage. I think the smaller groups picking away over time will, will make accomplishments. Uh, one of the activities I'm currently involved in with the um, International Remote Viewing Association is a subgroup of that called the, um, the URBA International Remote Viewing Research Unit. And here we actually encourage people to come in with ideas that we can help generate and develop into more detailed research programs or application programs with our encouragement and with linking up with others that might be that might help out in, in the endeavor. And we generate a lot of um, we attract people that, are, that really want to discover the kinds of things you're talking about. You know, what are the fundamentals? What's really behind those? Why can we maybe ultimately better come come to better understand it? Or if it can't do that, how can we better use this in in, uh, in our lives or in for the for our benefit and others? So there are groups like that and activities like that that are ongoing. So uh, it's this activity is just not huge <laughs> yeah. yeah but yeah you're right i mean it might be it might be better that there are multiple smaller groups perhaps choosing one aspect or facet of it and chipping away at that as opposed to one monolithic you know because yeah. i guess yeah i guess if it's if it, i guess if it's the dod i mean you're really only going to have like you're probably going to be looking at remote viewing you're probably really going to want to know where the subs are where the schematics are and maybe yeah. you're not giving as, as enough attention to the to the other phenomena right and you're not you don't need a huge team you know we only have less than a dozen counting staff and everything and uh, you know and i'm saying that there shouldn't be more such groups eventually but uh, depending on the needs whether it's the intelligence community or whether it's customs department trying to locate fugitives or uh, some other activity uh, you know the, i can see the continued need for uh, applying this phenomenon but uh, you have to be guarded you have to be careful in, in, in how you do this and how you select the people so it's not a straightforward thing but it's doable it could, you know let's face it <laughs> we did it when yeah. um, <laughs> we did you know and, and now i think back and i'm really fortunate that i was involved almost from the beginning to close to when it, it ended um, so I had a front seat row in this, um, and uh, it was really, really quite exciting. Uh, of course, <laughs> challenging and also many times disturbing uh, when you considered the, uh, the difficulties and, and some of the attacks that we got. Some, some of them were quite personal. Uh, so, so going through all that, um, I think we, we kind of laid a path, uh, like. You know, and they're, it's there for others to see what branch they want to take from it and accept it and develop it to the extent that they think they want to and to, to the benefit of themselves and, and uh, the people around them. You know, I, I, I kind of see it linking with holistic thoughts and um, the idea of global connectivity, uh, you know, and building on that. Um, you're looking at models to work with, um, and the understanding of what really is, what is the brain, you know? um, more than the mind, that's uh, one thing that our phenomenon and remote viewing related topics suggest very clearly, um, that we're, we're looking beyond what we call the brain, it's, it's, a, it's a mind 
connection? And where is mind? And how does mind connect? Is there, is there a field of some kind? Uh, is there a holographic structure that we uh, we tap into? So all these terms that we can use now from our modern understanding, of, say physics helps out to, um, to to move forward. And uh, they're more comfortable in sounding some of the older terms and they're more realistic too. So um, it's a it's a progress in in how we phrase things, understand things, and, and how we understand what we can we can do with this. And uh, it's it's a it's all there. You know, we we have a lot of potential, uh, and this is one area where we can we can really move forward and uh, and and be even more improved and and, and, uh, and relate to others. So um, it's like it's a lot here. It's like, That's why I got into this. It, it was such a broad field, you know. It, it forced me coming in from an, an aeronautical engineering and physics background yeah. to really start studying these other fields. Uh, so on the side, I took uh, quite a lot of uh, programs in psychology and and physiology and uh, even even uh, uh, psychiatry, <laughs> or I should say, abnormal psychology. I had to find out what was normal and not normal compared to um, the conventional standards. And uh, at that time, there's a lot of topics that were considered abnormal, which really shouldn't have been called that. You know, the, the t- terms had to be changed. Um, people that are psychic or, or remote viewers are not schizophrenic. You don't have to yeah. label them as schizos. Yeah. So, uh, so there's, terminology has changed as well over, over the years that we've been working with the topic and letting more people know uh, particularly in the psycho in, in the psychology areas that these these are normal these can be normal abilities that, that we have that we can take uncover and, and, um, and develop more fully than than, uh, than we probably thought we could yeah so there's a, a lot ahead here yeah it's, I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a two-dimensional being. Well, it's kind of like the realization that like the stars, you know, that moment in human history when you realize the stars aren't just specks of light, but they're other stars. Like they're not like a two-dimensional fabric, but rather there's a whole nother universe out there. It's, there's that realization of like, oh, the, there's so much more to this reality you know, right now it seems like, right now it seems like there are stars with plants around them, and the stars make up galaxies. It seems like it goes down to the cells and to the atoms and the quantum bio or quantum physics, and it seems like there's a certain limit on human lifespan that's slowly increasing. Technology gets better for communications, and if Elon Musk keeps at it, we'll have rockets to get us to Mars, and in a thousand years we'll go to. Other- it seems like that's kind of like at, at the base level, like that's the model but if you went back 500 years and asked someone what the model was it'd probably be pretty similar they'd say you know you get a partner you have kids there are churches there are companies there's corruption there's good times there's parties there's holidays there are explorers that go to distant lands and bring back spices and it would be i mean it's all correct but if you had said to them you know what do you think about rovers on mars they like what? Or if you said, "What do you think about uh, what what, what do you think about podcasts? What do you think about real time streaming podcasts with someone on a different continent? What are you talking about? What do you think about the World Wide Web?" And it's 
it's like pushing the debt ceiling on America. You push like the possibility ceiling. So you go, oh, there's even more. So now we'll send rovers to planets and maybe one day I'll walk on Mars. And in a thousand years, maybe our ancestors will be, you know, 99% robotic and they won't die. And okay, it seems like a, but there might be someone from the future coming back to us. And as the internet is alien to Christopher Columbus, they might be coming back and telling us about some network of minds that connect to each other through some hyper-dimensional holographic field like, oh, you guys haven't figured out the the global mind yet where you can go back in time and experience the thoughts of anyone and it's nothing but infinite bliss and that we're all in a harmony because we understand we're all just one being. You look at me and go, what? No, I'm, <laughs> I'm still fascinated by iPhones. And they're like, oh, dude, that's so last year. Like it, the, it, it pushes – and then those people – would eventually, they would become outdated as someone farther in the future. So it, what it seems like is the more you kind of explore these things, I mean, it's, it's nerve wracking. It's, 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 you're like, what am, what are we figuring out right now? But at the same time, you're, you're pulling these strings and you're realizing just how much more there is to this universe. It's not just planets and oceans and cars and batteries. It's like, dude, we are we are standing on like the first step of, you know, uh, of the, the, the Burj Khalifa, 180 story building. And it's like, dude, we're not even on the second floor yet. There's so much here. There's so much here. It's, it's, it's playing a video game on an arcade game in the eighties and going, Oh, this is cool. Wait till you see an Xbox in 2020. Like we're just on the precipice of, and it's not science fiction and it's not fantasy. It, it's all real. It, it's exciting is what it is. And that's really what, what uh, I think, if we, whatever we accomplished, we were able to make the phenomenon real. Yes. To any... Yes. Okay. Well, listen. Uh, yeah, we've, think... we've been going for an hour and a half. <laughs> but I'm kind of winding down a little bit. Sure. So... Yeah, me too. My, my brain starts to kick out after okay. about an hour. Um. It's really been interesting dialogue. Um, oh, it's it, fantastic. It, it, I, mean, I was able to come in with a few comments that I think blended in with um, the trend of the discussion and all that. So that's, I feel good about that. If, if, uh, this was, I normally only can go for about an hour. So if I talk to someone for longer than an hour, it's because I'm thoroughly <laughs> enjoying it. So take that as a compliment. Um, okay. I would love to have you back on sometime. doesn't need to be anytime soon. We can loosely schedule something. I'd love to chat with you again. You're a fascinating individual. I'd love to pick your mind. And mm-hmm. you have two books, correct? Yes. Yeah, Traction, Psychic Wilderness, and <clears throat> River Dreams. They're out of print, but they, they were. I wrote them shortly after I retired. Uh, and those shortly after the um, program shut down. And so I didn't have everything in there I would like to put in. It was a lot more or less personal development and how I became in, involved in the field and some of the learning things and some good and bad along the way. Um, but the one book, River Dreams, does go into detail on the general, Dozier's case, mm-hmm. the missing general in Italy, um, the fugitive, and the airplane. So those are the three things in, in River Dreams that are quite a bit of detail on. Uh, but I sprinkle it with synchronicities, dreams, because uh, uh, I've been doing quite a bit of research with three cognitive dreams. So I work that in, not just conscious state remote viewing. 
Um, um, so it's sort of a broad-based approach to the phenomenon, including uh, personal things, as as well as um, a few of the key things from from the program, from the from the Stargate program. So uh, yeah, it's there's I think copies are available in used copies here and there. I want to try to get them republished. Please do. Uh, one of my goals in uh, the coming year, I'm also in the, in somewhat in the middle of another book, which I need to close the door and, 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 and wrap up and finish um, in, within the next year. So I have a lot of things uh, that I still want to do here uh, relative to my previous involvement with Stargate, as well as the new activities I'm in, involved in. Um, and of course, my focus currently is, is on precognitive uh, material uh, and looking at how, how could we possibly, uh, uh, you know, understand that better. Like you were, you were saying, yeah. what, what is the implications for this fabric of the universe? Um, yeah. So anyway, this, this, I have a lot of ideas yet. So well, you're a br- you're a brilliant individual, and you have a very special mind. And I appreciate you coming on here and letting me talk to you, man. That was. That was that was a treat. That was so cool to be. I was because I listened to Phenomena by Annie Jacobson, and then I heard your name in there, and I was like, I wonder if I can just get him. And I reached <clears> out, and you emailed me back, and I was like, Yes. So thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Annie Annie Jacobson. It, it came to my place here in, in Pennsylvania, and we, we had a really nice interview. And uh, I, I think she appreciated some of the perspectives I had, which were different from uh, some of the others that they were that she was in. And she actually did put in some personal material that I really didn't think she would, which um, is fine with me, but it, it, it does get into some personal incidents more so. But again, she's writing more from a personal, experiential mm-hmm. uh, level, as well as keeping her hand on uh, as much of the science as possible. Sure. She can, she's yeah. a broad-based writer, and I, I really appreciated her, uh, her perspectives yeah. on what she wanted to accomplish with that, that book. Well, I think yeah. she did it well. I think she, yeah. that's what got me very, very interested in more than normal was it seemed yeah. like, oh, this is a, a grounded thing. And, um, but Dr. Graff, thank you yeah. so much, sir. I will let you go. Thank you so much for coming on here. I will put your website in the description. Everybody keep your minds open and uh, maybe we can figure this thing out because it's fascinating. Dr. Dale Graff, the one and only. Thank you so much, sir. Take care. God bless. Stay safe, everybody.